0: I would suggest that maybe if the first thing that you do after attaining enlightenment is to divide your life into two halves before and after enlightenment by, I don't know, changing your name, say from Richard Alpert to Ram Das, or from Stephen Gray to Adyashanti, maybe at that particular moment, making that particular decision. You're not quite as enlightened as uh, you might be projecting out
1: into the world. My name is Ronan Levy, and you're listening to the Non-Ordinary Podcast, my sometimes serious, sometimes not so serious podcast exploring the most interesting questions in life. In case you hadn't realized, somewhere between zero and the number two is one. Thanks for the math lesson, Professor Ronan. You may be thinking to yourself, and to that I say, you're welcome. Because what you may not appreciate is that somewhere in that jump, from 0 to 2, we go from non-natural numbers to a natural number. Why does that matter? Honestly, fuck the final. But as you'll hear in this conversation with Ben, Doc Askins, author of The Anti-Hero's Journey, there's something about that question that seems important. Or not at all. Don't listen to me, think for yourself. What is all this bullshit, Ronan? And that's a very good question. And one that was actually going to be the name of this episode. But then... How to Think for Yourself seemed like a slightly better title. Because of all the things that Ben and I wander through like a spirograph in this conversation, that's probably the most important one, and certainly the lesson I'm taking away from this conversation. Maybe you'll hear something totally different. It all depends on the axioms you start with, right? But before we get into this conversation, I have to remind you that all people appearing in this podcast, including naked mole rats, are fictitious. Any resemblance to real persons or mole rats, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Enjoy the conversation. All right, for this podcast, I usually go a little bit more off the cuff, but I actually wrote down a whole bunch of motherfucking questions for you. Shit,
0: um, <laughs> did his homework. Long time listener, first time caller here. Yeah,
1: long time since I've done done homework too. So I, I hope <laughs> uh, hope you appreciate the effort that goes into this. I appreciate everything. Oh, that's good. Are um, you appreciate? You watch uh, you watch Letter Kenny.
0: That's what I appreciate about yous. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. All right, here we go. All right, Ben. I have to say with certainty that I've never done a podcast like this, but my okay. only question for you in this entire podcast is, what the fuck? <laughs> the mic is yours.
0: I'm straight psychic. I knew that was going to be the question, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. More seriously, though, uh, you wrote a book called The Anti-Hero's Journey. The zero with a thousand faces it starts with a philosophy that all reality is zero and then goes on to tell all the untrue stories of your life so it'll help us or me tell all the untrue stories of our or my life um so to get started before we hear all of your untrue stories (laughs) what made you want to write this book where did the idea come from and why did you feel compelled to write it
0: yeah yeah um here i'm a, i'm going to say something controversial at the okay. outset if you can imagine that just to maybe like hook the audience in and then they'll stay with us for the duration or something right i talk a bunch in the book about like enlightenment whatever that means, right? And there's like Western views of that and Eastern views of that. Is it Buddhist enlightenment? Is it American enlightenment? But I would suggest that maybe if the first thing that you do after attaining enlightenment is to divide your life into two halves before and after enlightenment by, I don't know, changing your name, say, from Richard Alpert to Ram Dass or from Stephen Gray to Adyashanti. Maybe at that particular moment, making that particular decision, you're not quite as enlightened as uh, you might be projecting out into the world. My name's Ben Askins. It always has been, and it always will be. And whether I'm enlightened or not, you can judge for yourself. Because the whole point of the book is to just think for yourself, or not at all. <laughs> or not at all. <clears throat> um All right. um... Throw you a curveball that didn't even answer any of the three questions that you asked me, right? No. You want want to hear about why I wrote the book? Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, I I love the – I I hope you're getting sponsored by liquid death right now because that was (laughs) a a perfect moment uh, to be drinking some liquid death. The armless palmer is my favorite liquid death. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, So – Let's. I'm going to ask this question, but feel free to circle back. Let's use Ram Das as, as potentially a point of uh, conversation. Yeah, yeah. So the book takes us through the logic that the only sin is creatio ex nilio, to make something out of nothing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it yeah. seems
1: to start with the logical inference that if every philosophy starts with axioms that must reside outside of that philosophy, then no philosophy can exist by itself. Do I have that right? Take me through that thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah, explain like what what chapter zero is all about in the book, right? <laughs> the zero exactly. with a thousand faces writes chapter zero. And uh, some of the inspiration there is uh, I'm just kind of popularizing a particular philosophy uh, most commonly written about by a philosopher named Graham Priest. Dr. Graham Priest talks about the liar paradox and then non-classical logics, paraconsistent logics like dialetheism, where it's possible for some statements to be both true and false, neither true nor false at the same time. And that's like Western analytic philosophy's way of looking at it but there's problems like that that go as far back as we've got you know written words they'll call it the tetralemma in uh, hinduism and in buddhism where you know there it's something that's beyond the cones right like what's the sound of one hand clapping or if a tree falls in the forest right i can clap with one hand <laughs> problem solved right that's like that's like the north american way of answering all of these right is we just find a loophole and that's kind of like <laughs> the whole point of my book is like what's the american version of enlightenment or whatever let's cut through the bullshit i don't want any gurus i just want anti-gurus i don't want heroes i want anti-heroes i want to i don't want to sit at the top of a mountain in the lotus position starving forever i just want to like have less war and a whole lot more peace and can we get there real real fast it's kind of my philosophy that i try to explicate in the story right but coming back around to your question Like you have to have a firstest first principle if you're going to do anything, if you're going to do logic, if you're going to do math, if you're going to have laws, if you're going to have rules for the games that you're going to play, you got to have that first rule. And really ultimately, all of the first rules aren't necessarily any better than any of the other ones. It's just which ones are everybody else playing by around you. And then you play by those rules, right? Like the classical examples are geocentrism versus heliocentrism and how we look at the way that we construct the, construct the stories about our existence. Or so it's a move from Uh, you know, Newtonian mechanics to Einsteinian mechanics and physics, like we get real uh, interested in all of these sorts of things. And there's mind bending questions about quantum physics. And Mm -hmm. it's got it's trickled out to the point where it's in the popular consciousness now, right? Like there's jokes on TV shows uh, about quantum physics. And there's life coaches and yoga gurus of different kinds that are incorporating, you know, superposition and Schrodinger's cat into the way that they want to sell you their particular course on how to do stretching a certain way or whatever. Right. And I, as far as I know, like I've read quite uh, broadly at this point in my life. I haven't seen where anybody really went right at the heart of a whole lot of this stuff. In, in my reading of things, logic and math are about as basic as it gets. Like trying to say anything about physics is going to involve your particular philosophy of words and numbers in the first place. And there's axioms in those games too. And kind of the point that I drive at is you will need to accept some axiom. So everybody else has these particular axioms. And I talk about, you know, in math, it's, you know, P&O's axioms are what we do for basic arithmetic and in logic there's the law of non-contradiction is kind of the most basic basic the firstest first principle is what I call it right yeah uh, sorry before
1: but, you go on can you just explain uh, a, couple, a couple of those axioms just so anyone listening sure. who hasn't read the book can understand in a little more depth <laughs> I'll, just,
0: I'll just keep on running and maybe they'll like tune in and then they'll actually buy the book and read it or something <laughs> <right>? <laughs> or they'll just tune us out and move on like this guy's an asshole he doesn't yeah, like nothing he doesn't like ajashanti <laughs> he thinks he's smarter than me he thinks he's smarter than everybody and that you know, nothing could be further from the truth if you get to know me like i just like to crack some jokes from like that perspective the, the book's intended to be a lot of fun as well as open up a lot of questions right at the end of the day like there's a lot of people who are afraid of taking psychedelics and the book is intended to be sort of like a psychedelic trip that you can read and put down anytime you start to get nauseous or your head starts to hurt. You get a little bit scared. If you're having a bad time, you can put a book down. You can't undigest a large dose, a heroic dose of yeah. mushrooms or LSD or whatever, right? But yeah, coming back around to the axiom, so like... One of the first principles in math that uh, Giuseppe Piano comes up with, he's got these nine uh, meta-mathematical axioms. They're the rules that he adopted based on his reading of the history of mathematics. Here's the the most basic rules, and we don't got to run through them all. I don't run through them all in the book. But the most basic first axiom that he gives is that zero is a natural number, which is... Treating nothing as if it was something—it's taking zero and acting like it's a number. But you know, zero is just a concept. And, uh, natural numbers before that were defined as anything between one and infinity. So, is a natural number zero? No. But if we do a little sleight of hand mathematically, we do a little full. Philosophical abracadabra and slide zero over into the set of natural numbers. Turns out that you can create all kinds of crazy mathematical equations, and you can come up with actual infinities, and that's where things like, you know, Hilbert's hotel paradox comes in, where you can have an infinite hotel with infinite rooms and infinite guests. And all you have to do to make room for one more person is just slide everybody down one room further and open up room one. Oh, sure enough, we can fit a person in there. These sorts of paradoxes are a lot of fun, and philosophers make a lot of money publishing papers about trying to solve them. Nobody's paying attention
1: to. Don't make any money, and that's probably (laughs) one of the problems we have in our society. But.
0: Right. Like, uh, you know, different philosophers find a way to write a business book, and that's whenever they start to make money, right? That's
1: exactly right. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, you may have heard this term before, but I think a lot of what you're talking about right now is what's called uh, mathemagic. Right, uh, yeah, 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 a
0: math magician, yeah, make something out of nothing, something like, like that. that's the you know, and that's theology, right? I've got a master of divinity degree and read a whole bunch of theology on top of philosophy. If you think there's a difference between the two things, right? Um, but that's sort of the. The theory of how things came into existence in the first place is that God created something out of nothing, or right. we don't know what existed before what we call the Big Bang, but we call that nothing. And I'm suggesting that maybe everything is still nothing, and we're just kind of continuing to create it or whatever. Um, the, the logical first principle, the logical axiom that all of classical logic is based on is the law of non-contradiction. Something is not both itself and not itself at the same time, or not both a and not a. But there's this paradox, the liar paradox, that kind of explodes that. And the, the sentence is just, this sentence is not true. It's one of the paradoxes of self referenced, where if the sentence is true then it's telling us a lie, then yeah. it must be false. And if the sentence is false, then it's claiming that it is already not true, so it must be true. And you just kind of run in these circles in your head over and over again. If it's, it's like not that, true, then it must be false. And if it's
1: not false, then it's got to be true. And if, It's uh, taking me know... to that moment in Labyrinth. Remember Labyrinth, the movie where we saw David Bowie's junk quite dance, clearly magic, outlined dance, his magic dance. And, <laughs> yeah, and uh, there's the moment where, um, oh, what's the actress's name? Um,
0: is it uh, Jennifer or something
1: or other? Yeah, something she was like in requiem for me, a
0: dream. Yeah, yeah.
1: And she has to like figure out which one, which of the the two people were telling the truth, and and went through the logic of that and and figured it yeah. out. A way. Yeah, and
0: yeah. you could just get lost in it forever, right? And or you can just chuck it. You can be like, "This hurts my head. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I am just going to live by the law of non contradiction," which is what most people do. But What I am trying to do in the book, and to some degree in my life, is live out of the possibility that. Uh, You know, all of those first axioms are just assumptions that are social constructs that we all agree to, and then we play by those rules, right? And it's just, uh, ultimately, it winds up having a lot of practical implications that are, that represent anti-fragility right Right. uh you're familiar with like paradigm shifts uh in science thomas kuhn wrote a book the um, structure of scientific revolutions talking about you know kind of moving from one major paradigm of seeing science a certain way to another usually involves this eruption at a certain point where you hit a tipping point and everybody stops believing in uh you know intelligent design and moves to Darwinian evolution as the way in which we interpret all of the so-called facts of science around us and uh, you know it ended a whole bunch of people's careers when they had to you know fight over which one of these is it going to be and one way to be sort of anti-fragile whenever a paradigm shift takes place is to kind of recognize whatever the first axiom was was something we all kind of just agreed to in the first place so if we're going to move to another one i can just jump ship to the new paradigm faster than everybody else because i knew the first paradigm was bullshit that we all agreed to in the first place and now we're going to agree to some new bullshit. Well, okay. Why would I fight about that with you? Let's just get back to the business of living yeah. and taking care of, you know, the illusions around us that we love in particular, like my wife and my children and my business and all of those sorts
1: of things. Is that making
0: sense? It does.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of
0: anything uh, does.
1: No, I follow it. It reminds me of Tom Robbins, uh, has a quote, uh, where he says, uh, the universe doesn't have laws. It has habits and habits can be broken.
0: And yeah. Like, yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, and I, I had that thought. It, it's kind of tangential, but I remember one time because like now like sugar, you know, carbohydrates are bad, all that kind of stuff. And fat <laughs> is good. And, you know, I had this one moment where I thought about maybe 50 years ago when that whole movement about like fat is bad and, and carbs are good was true then, you know, and that somehow just like our collective consciousness or our bodies has actually, have actually changed. That It wasn't that people were wrong then, the science was the science. It's just that something has changed between now and then. And there's been, at least in that case, like a physical or biological paradigm shift that happened. I don't know, but it's the same kind of logic (laughs) of like, you know, all truths can be questioned, I suppose.
0: Yeah, there's, well, there's some different ways that the Krebs cycle is going to make Energy for you, regardless of whether you're feeding it a whole lot of fat or a whole lot of sugar, right? So, like in your mind, you can change whichever way you want and still make relatively equal amounts of ATP and keep functioning. It's just whether you're going to get diabetes 20 years earlier, or 20 years later, <laughs> eating that particular <laughs> Eventually way. Eventually, you're going to
1: get it though. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, if you hang in there long enough, you're going to die of something, right? Or how do I say it in the book? If the Big Bang gives us all tinnitus, if we hang in there long enough, you know. Um, it's absolutely great. Yeah. Right in the, in the first place, uh, I wrote the book mostly to cure my own insomnia. Like I just couldn't <laughs> sleep for two weeks. And that was when I wrote the book, which has become like an inside joke with all of my friends is like, yeah, you want to cure your insomnia? Just write a book. That's super normal. That's what everybody else would do or whatever, you know? Um, but I just couldn't sleep for about two weeks in a row. Cause I had these ideas running through my head. I'd done, um, academy assisted therapy session, pretty recently before that and people call it like downloads or like you're trying to make sense of stuff and it was a pretty it was a bad time I had a bad time in that particular uh you know ketamine session or whatever and then a couple weeks later I was I just couldn't sleep until I like integrated these thoughts in my head and just put them down on paper. And the final product of the book is slightly better than my like insomniac rantings, but not by much to be completely (laughs) honest. Right. So that, you know, like the joke among me and my friends is like, yeah, it took me two weeks to write the book. Or it also took me 42 years to write the book because it was just trying to make sense of a whole bunch of like, armchair philosophy problems that I've been playing with for a long time in my head and a whole bunch of just, you know, my own childhood and my own, you know, war stories and and all of that sort of stuff just to make sense of. And once I got it out of my head, I could sleep. So like, you know, after the two weeks was up, I was like, okay, this is good enough maybe to put out into the world. I shared it with some people who are the kind of people who wouldn't just like point out if your fly was down They're the kind of people who would call everybody else's attention to the fact that your fly is down, you know, and yeah. they're like, yeah, this is pretty good. I kind of like it. You know, like one of them was willing to write the forward to the book and, uh, you know, I've managed to call together quite a few people who've, you know, at least enjoyed the trip of trying to understand what the hell it is. I'm trying to say there, right? Like you said, what
1: the fuck? <laughs> exactly uh, you know any book that has a post you know, uh, what's the word post uh after death what's, what's the word i'm looking for posthumous um, posthumous yeah, yeah yeah quote from uh hunter s thompson only a goddamn lunatic would write a thing <laughs> like this and then claim it was true hey i have a lot of respect for that
0: <laughs> yeah and that's some of it too right like um I'm a big Hunter S. Thompson fan, so to a certain degree, I was trying to channel Hunter a little yeah. bit in some of this sort of stuff. And I, you know, like he's done a ridiculous amount more drugs than than I have, but uh, his story's an amazing story, and I always enjoyed reading a bunch of the stuff that he wrote. So some of it's kind of me just kind of imitating him a little bit, right? Yeah. But that was how he felt about fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Like after he put it out there, he was like, "Only a goddamn lunatic would <laughs> write something like this and then claim it's true or whatever." You know, I was like. And that, uh, like, there was this temptation in writing it. There wasn't the temptation in writing it, but the idea of publishing. And I thought about, like, should I put this under a pseudonym? Should I just, like, put this out there under somebody else's name? Which lots of people have done. There's a long storied tradition of, you know, Mark Twain writing a bunch of books about whatever. And, uh he used to have these problems where he'd go speak at college campuses and he couldn't tell if people wanted to hear from Samuel Clemens or Mark Twain and Hunter had uh, you know kind of his gonzo alter ego who you know people do they want to hear from this guy or from that guy and I did that a little bit with the doc thing right like right. it's you know the title on there's Captain Ben Doc Askins or whatever, but that was actually a way of of kind of integrating what I felt like was a split in my own personality or my own experiences right because i've deployed a few times as a combat medic and as a pa so there's whole like years of my life where everybody just called me doc and then i come home and i gotta be ben again and there was this just sort of rift that i couldn't kind of bring together and i was like you know what i'm just gonna publish the book under both names like everybody either calls me ben or doc maybe this will bring together my civilian life and my military life. And then a whole bunch of people who don't know me will just think it's some kind of bullshit pseudonym. And I'm just putting a bunch of crazy stories that I made up out there or whatever.
1: Or a very highly qualified person at the same time, right? (laughs) Because you got the PhD (laughs) honors thrown in at the end too.
0: Yeah. It's just honorary, which I think is funny. Like if you go on my website and look in the background, there's pictures of the book cover and I have an actual, you know, my friend, Dr. Sarah Bliss Matusik, PhD, neurochemist, wrote the kind of cover blurb on the book. And Dr. Mike Stone, MD, you know, emergency medicine faculty from Harvard wrote the foreword. And if you look, you know, like PhD honorary, makes it look like you graduated with honors or something with a phd when really it's complete bullshit like a college somewhere thought you were cool enough to give you a certificate that says you're a doctor you know honorarily but in the background on the website it says you know like sarah bliss matusa phd not honorary (laughs) not honor (laughs) and it says like dr mike stone not honor and then like those are the legit degrees but for whatever reason we decided calling it an honorary phd was the way to go and it just confuses the shit out of people so a ton of what i do in the book and in real life because i think it's funny is play around with all of the goofy ways that we label things and name things and decide to construct reality and play by all these different rules right it was you know dr jill biden got herself into trouble not that long ago over the whole honorary doctorate thing like yeah Everybody was super mad. You're not a real, real, real doctor. Like you never stitched anything up. Well, I'm not a real, real, real doctor either, but I've stitched lots of things because I'm a PA and that's super controversial. And everybody calls me doc. Cause that was my nickname for being a combat medic. It's just playing with reality.
1: That's all you can really hope to do. Play with the thing. A hundred percent. Life is too serious to take seriously. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, So I I, I want to explore more of that, but I'm going to go back to my list of questions because I did all the thinking beforehand and I just show up here (laughs) and pretend like I know what I'm doing. (laughs) All right. So now in a bit of an audible from my usual podcast um, releases, tomorrow I'm actually going to be releasing an episode uh, of Sam Harris's podcast. And he he recently issued an episode called The Bright Line Between Good and Evil. I I wrote Evolve, but I meant to write Evil. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I'm just going to include a bit of a commentary off the top and I'm doing this because I think what he has to share is really important. The main point of which is that when it comes to conversations around jihad, uh, we make the mistake mm-hmm. in the West by assuming that all people want the same thing to live a happy, successful life, to see our kids grow up, all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, I think that's a false assumption or at least his point is that that's a mm-hmm. false assumption that people make, um, you know, that when it comes to jihad, uh, um, some people view life, this life as meaningless and to be sacrificed uh, for paradise in the next life is, is the purpose of life. And now, I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing and probably doing a severe injustice, but for purposes of this thought process, it gets the point across. Um, now, this is probably a conversation that cuts very close to home for you based on your experience in the Overwatch Tower. Was it in Iraq or where was that? Yeah, that was in Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can, can you can you share that story? Because I found that quite profound. And herald.
0: yeah, yeah, let's uh, talk even about even the worst day, day of my life.
1: Story. Why not? What's that?
0: I said, yeah, let's talk about the worst day of my life. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. I've done enough ketamine assisted therapy around that. We can talk about it in front of the whole world. What the hell? I wrote a book about it. It's on me at this point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, before I'm going to answer the question behind the question and then I'll tell, you know, the story a little bit, right. You, You quoted Sam Harris there around like some of Jihad and good and evil and, um, You know, in the book, I talk a lot about this idea of like duality versus non duality, right? And, you know, there's this illusion of separateness. And if we would all recognize that we're just the universe is experiencing itself from different perspectives or whatever, then maybe we'd be nicer to each other at the very least or there's a bunch of just different thought experiments that i run through there like if you imagine that you lived every human life you might treat every other human life differently if you thought you were going to have to live that life like andy weir's egg short story or whatever right yeah um And you and I talked when I had you on my podcast about like the idea of a dialectic where, you know, there's a thesis and an antithesis and a synthesis that's just this natural way that we kind of navigate our way through the world. Right. And a bunch of what I'm trying to do is get people to live out of a headspace that's more oneness oriented, more, more compassionate, more seeing other people as having just as complex an existence as yours, if not more so. Uh, So that you can relate to them. And I think one of the easiest ways to try to do that is to recognize that if you had been born, whatever person you're currently judging for being whatever way they are at this moment, you would be doing exactly what they're doing. There's nothing special about you that you are just this superhero that had you been born in a country where jihadism is in the air that you breathe from the moment that you were born until now, that you could think that you would be the hero. You'd be the one that would break all the rules in that particular society and you'd act differently. I mean, get real like like yeah. you act exactly the way you act because to some degree you were raised the way you were raised and you had the opportunities that you've had and didn't have. And you've made the most of them or you didn't. Um, but every single person at every single moment is doing something that makes the most sense to them in that moment. And if they could be doing something different that then they would be. And to recognize some of those sorts of things to be true of everybody from like Mother Teresa to a suicide bomber gives you the opportunity to adopt a perspective of compassion around some of those sorts of things um, rather than you know, judgment and condemnation, right? So that maybe we can be a little bit more quote unquote oneness oriented around some of this stuff. And how exactly do you get there from wherever you start? I'm not even a hundred percent sure. Like I feel like maybe I stumbled into it for myself 10 minutes ago and then decided to write a book about it and maybe that's not the best first decision to make right walking back a little bit of judging adyashanti and ram das for like claiming to be enlightened in the first place yeah it's kind of a big claim to make guy or whatever you know um but i do think that that's like some of the psyop that i'm running in the book is like this difference between 2 and 0 like 0 is super scary you don't want to go to level 0 stay away from 0 like it's nothing it's indifference it's meaninglessness it's nihilism it's all this sort of stuff in tunis that's where like we hate each other and we beat each other up we shoot each other in the face over a whole bunch of stuff and we've been living this tunis thing for as long as people <laughs> can remember <laughs> but maybe we can run a dialectic where everybody moves into like oneness and recognizes uh you know everybody out there uh, is is struggling, and everybody out there is suffering, and that maybe we can do something to treat each other as if we were you know as if we love each other as if we're all a part of the same family, that sort of thing um but now i'm I'm starting to ramble a little bit no, I, I come I... back around to your question about the virgin Mary,
1: yeah. It tell the story and then i want to come back to this because i think this was the thing that opened my eyes uh from from sam's podcast and i just want to like honestly nerd out on it because i don't have the answers but i want to see how uh you know it it may be the antithesis to the thesis that you just proposed um and to see if maybe we can come to sort of some sort of synthesis around it but but Share that story, I think it's super powerful, and I can't even imagine what it must have been like,
0: yeah, I don't know that I've ever like told it out loud, like I wrote it down in the book, and that was like my wife read the manuscript, uh and that was the first time that she heard the story, right like it was something that I intended to just drink about for the rest of my life and like take to the grave with me so uh oh,
1: i'll I'll do my best with it here, but if I stop, uh, like, I mean I, I should stop like i uh Obviously, I would love for you to share the story because of yeah, so no, no. Up, it, but yeah. like, if if it's not right for you, don't please.
0: No, I appreciate that. Um, the The short version of the story is that I got put in this like impossible situation uh, where it just felt like the universe conspired against me to make me do. Uh, something that I would never do under any other sort of set of circumstances, but went ahead and did, I was uh, deployed. And while I was deployed as a combat medic with a military police company, I was, uh, my wife had our second daughter and she was born on father's day while I was gone. And she had to go to the intensive care unit because she wasn't breathing properly. And we put in a, uh, Red Cross message, and the you know I I went home to be with them because she was in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, and it was just six days that she was in there because she's a tough little lady, just like her mama, and got out of the NICU in just six days. And uh, same day she was getting out of the NICU, I went right back to war. I went back uh, to my unit. Which was rough, right, on the family, on me. I missed her meeting her older sister for the first time. My wife sent me a picture of the first time that my eldest daughter met my second born. And, you know, she's holding the baby. And it was just this beautiful moment that I just wasn't there for And uh, I put that picture up on the wall in the containerized housing unit, the chew that I lived in. And I kissed that picture every day whenever I walked out. And that deployment was like a nothing burger of a deployment. Almost nothing happened on the deployment, Um, you know, like indirect fire and artillery and some of those sorts of things. But, you know, like we didn't, it wasn't kinetic. I'm not special forces. I'm in the national guard, man. Like I was on this operating base there and I just wound up getting called up into this shit situation where everybody was sick and we were short staffed and nobody was around and sure we'll stick the medic up in this tower on like a guard duty and I'm passing out like anti-diarrhea meds and not really paying attention to what's going on and I'm supposed to be on a rifle and I'm not a rifleman man I'm a medic in the army like every Marines a rifleman and they're super good at shooting and like I can shoot a little but like I'm not an expert or anything like that. And uh, and then there's this lady who turned out to be a suicide bomber that like managed to get herself inside of the wire, but not far enough inside to do, uh, you know, a whole bunch of damage. But I didn't know at the time, like they've got her dressed up as a lady with a baby, right? And the people in charge are telling me to, you know, put her down because she's inside of the, you know, rules of engagement say to go ahead and engage at this point. And it's okay to engage. And I just really didn't want to shoot a baby, man. Right. Like, which I think is pretty natural for practically anybody out there. Right. So I wound up, uh, you know, shooting this lady and it turned out that she was wearing a suicide vest and she didn't have a baby and whoever put her into that particular situation, you know, like, that's not something that anybody chooses, right? Nobody decides. The best thing for me at this particular moment is to go and, you know, die in this particular way. Like, under normal circumstances, nobody does that. And under normal circumstances, there's no way you could get me to do something that awful. But, you know, you learn a little bit about the context and the background of how people become suicide bombers in the first place. It's generally some real evil people take your family away from you and then say, you can go and do this awful thing and we will take care of your family forever. Or you can refuse to go and do this awful thing, and we will kill your family in front of you. And they do that enough times in a community, and they genuinely take care of that person's family after somebody goes and becomes a suicide bomber. And it basically becomes like you, you put layers of religion on top of it, and it becomes this like retirement plan for you. Like, yeah, you're going to die and go to heaven, and your family's going to be way better off than they ever would have been otherwise. Uh, and people go and they, you know, you get a bunch of drugs and somebody's as high as a kite whenever they go in there and, you know, you get wired up in different ways so that maybe if somebody does get cold feet, they can still blow them up anyway. And, um, you know, that was to me like the worst thing that I ever had to do. And I just kind of carried that around for a real long time. And I drank about it for a real long time. And I didn't tell anybody the story about it. Nobody in my unit knew the story about it because I was like assigned to a different place. and. Uh, uh, you know, with a, a bunch of different people. I was just surrounded by strangers whenever it happened. Like, it was just the worst, impossible, imaginable scenario for me. Like, I wanted to be a hero, man. I wanted to go kill bad guys. I wanted to, like, you know, thought the whole world was a video game. And I just wound up having to shoot a lady uh, that I thought was carrying a baby at the time. But it turned out it wasn't the case. And then I had this uh, holotropic breathwork session where uh, I wound up
1: and there was seeing her no again. MDMA being used in that moment. Uh, <laughs>
0: And, you know, yeah, definitely not any MDMA because that'd be totally illegal to do something like that. I'd never do anything illegal, not even to save my own life, right? <laughs> or anything horrible or anything terrible. But, uh, you know, I, she visited me, you know, and uh, and she forgave me. She told me that she loved me. She told me that I don't understand how the universe works and I don't understand, like, nobody does. And, like, you know, all these sorts of mysteries, but it, like, at the end of the whole thing is love. Was what I received as a message from beyond, or whatever, and then I, you know, in other ketamine sessions and in other breathwork sessions, like that, <clears throat> at the end of this whole thing. Uh, you just kind of fall into love. I don't know if that's true for everybody, but that's how I feel very deeply convicted about for me at this point anyway, is that like I you know, like I was worried, like, am I gonna go to hell for this? Am I gonna, you know, like are they waiting to ambush me on the other side for this? Are they am I gonna have to pay for this? Is the like karma real and I'm just gonna have to like pay off the karma for some awful things that I've done? Or uh, you know, like what's the what's the story around a bunch of that stuff? And like if I deeply feel more than anything else that after this life it's nothing but love
1: right thank you for for sharing that i appreciate it i i can still see that like it's It's not uh, my favorite story but it's a
0: whole lot more easy to approach at this point than uh than it's ever been for me thanks to you know non-ordinary states of consciousness and a shit ton of therapy yep
1: that's what they're good for in many ways (laughs) right yeah um all right. Well, let's 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 go on to the philosophical side of things. Um and then I'm gonna circle back to like where this took you. But so this is what was interesting about what Sam Harris um said in his podcast. And I kind of shared the perspective that you offered, which was no one willingly goes into that scenario, right? It's only under some sort of direct or indirect indirect duress that people would ever do that. And I think Sam's point in the podcast, I mean, he made a lot, was like, that's an assumption that we make in the West. That it's not necessarily true and that every time we apologize for that behavior, in certain cases, absolutely there's duress. But Speaking specifically of what just happened in Hamas, and he, he gave other examples in, in Pakistan. It's not a moment of duress. It's people who genuinely don't believe that this experience of being human is meaningful at all, and the greatest thing we can be doing is sending people into the next lives, and particularly children. Um, he, he he gave the example. I think it was in, it was in Pakistan where jihadis killed something like 140 children at school, and he quoted one of. The members, um, I don't know if you participated or afterwards, who said, you people in the West don't understand. Like our viewpoint is we've done the greatest service to these children. They were innocent and now they go to heaven. And that's the most wonderful thing that we could have ever done. There's nothing to be grieving. There's no loss. This is wonderful. And and it was the first time I thought and realized like, oh, fuck, we're talking to people who operate on a, a different fundamental thesis i don't know what their axioms are i mean we can yeah, go back yeah. to the conversation about axioms and all that kind of right. stuff but it's like right we and i do this which is like i i operate on the assumption that like given equal, equality of circumstances other things being equal people would want the same thing and it was the first time that made me stop and say like oh maybe we don't yeah and if we don't we can't have a rational conversation about getting to an end point um and even going back to the question of of oneness and and unity it's like it comes back to the practical side of if that is true if we're not talking about rationality like the the philosophy the underpinnings of what we think is right and wrong are the same thing then what the fuck do we do as a society right like because in in the west our philosophy is like life is valuable we should do everything we can to enhance and 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 preserve it and and if there's People who genuinely philosophically believe it's not—that's a—that's a conflict that, that that's not easier to resolve. Um, and yeah. you know, it sounds like through your experience, you still came back to the the unity kind of experience through the ketamine and breath work to say like, no, 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 it's still all love. But I don't know. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, yeah. Is it all just kind of pie in the sky, hippy dippy sorts of stuff, Doc? Are you a utopian now? Uh, You're going to be a socialist? You're no, gonna, I'm the same. You know, I, listen, yeah, yeah. I was the same. No, way these until are the I questions that I get all the time because we have these conversations, you know, in a box hole or in like you know drill weekend or whatever, hanging out. Like we just got lots of time on our hands, so we everybody's an armchair philosopher in the military because you got nothing to do sitting somewhere forever, right? And you yeah. get sick of talking about, you know. Boring stuff. Every once in a while, you look up at the stars and say, What the fuck are we all doing here anyway? Why are we here fighting these other people over all of this bullshit? Is it just about money? Is it just about, you know, whatever? Yeah, you're right. Like, there has to be some level of common ground somewhere. There has to be some axiom that we share with the people that are going to come to the table to have any kind of a diplomacy discussion, to have any kind of a can we make peace here? Um, you have to have something to base those conversations on. If it's absolute disagreement all the way down to the most basic axiom, then yeah, like we might as well just kill each other and then see. But see, I won now, my axiom's right, and we'll just go on from here. But uh, that doesn't really resolve everything, right? And the, the issue is, we all do actually have. Common ground that's sort of ineluctable. You can't get away from the fact of being a human being or the fact of living on the planet. But the ultimate axiom that somebody you know, from a a jihadist standpoint is subscribing to like, you, you might only have like an ultimate axiom in common from the West to the East in that regard or whatever. Right. Like, um, so what do you do with that? Well, that's where like, I still have some hope around, you know, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. One of the things that they put out there is this idea of net zero trauma by 2070, right. Do the math on it. And we do PTSD, with psychedelic-assisted therapy sorts of treatments for the folks who've been waging the wars and who've been suffering through as civilians under where wars are taking place to where somebody you know no longer meets the diagnostic criteria for PTSD on one side. And then you get to where maybe we can do some peacemaking and diplomacy around using some of the same substances among some of the people who disagree most thoroughly, right? Because that's what psychedelics are really for is opening up your quote-unquote consensus reality state and allowing the opportunity to maybe just maybe see things from a whole different perspective than the one that you grew up with and spent the last 30 or 40 years defending and cultivating and proving to yourself that it's right enough that you'll kill a kid over uh, whether or not you believe that to be true, right? The, you know, MAPS put something out in the news a while back about like a real big deal leader in the white supremacist movement who kind of sneaked into one of the MDMA clinical trials by not disclosing that, by the way, uh, I'm the leader of this, you know, American History X type organization. And then he came out the other side of the clinical trial and now he's an advocate for, you know, he's anti-racist and all of those sorts of things is just kind of one case study, a little bit of ANEC data around the potential that some of these medicines have for changing people's minds and not changing people's minds like, well, I was going to go left and now I'm going to go right, but changing it like taking off a dirty diaper and putting on a clean diaper that's your mind is the level of change that we're talking about for these particular substances. So yes, radically, radically different, violently opposed axioms between you know, members of the U.S. military and members of the group of people that would murder children in order to send them to hell over in Pakistan. But I still think, uh, you know, they have a prefrontal cortex, they have a brainstem, and they have a midbrain in between, and that there's ways of accessing, you know, the amygdala and the 5-HT2A receptor and all of the science, you know, psychedelic science nerd stuff that. Uh, that I'm super interested in and that's a big part of my life now and professional life and personal life and practice and stuff that has the potential to open people up in a way that uh, has been illegal so far but that could really, you know, dare I say out loud, bring about
1: world peace. It, it becomes a very interesting thought experiment in my mind, um, which is if you give MDMA to a jihadi, do they still come to that unity experience or does it still, does it validate because <clears throat> you, me, we, we operate and we've always operated on worldview of of something where life is valuable. Um, so is that innate to humanity or um, is it just the philosophy that we've absorbed from who we are and where we got raised? It's a, an interesting, but also fucking terrifying question. Because if you find out that on the other side, there is a, an existence of humanity where life is not valuable, no matter how much i love and PTSD you process. Mm-hmm. It's scary. And it really yeah. is scary. And, and on a, on a society wide basis, you know, there's always going to be the aberrations, the, the Ted Bundy's and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's uh Interesting <laughs> thought process. Yeah, we,
0: I mean, we used to run plenty of prison experiments once upon a time, not that long ago in the West too, you know, like That's I don't true. know how ethical it would be to take MDMA to Guantanamo Bay or anything like that, but we've taken worse things down there. So I don't know. You know,
1: <laughs> Very, very fair. Uh, mean. There's
0: an argument to be made there, right? You know, like maybe it'll work better than waterboarding, guys. Maybe we should give it a try just
1: to see. Maybe we'll put MDMA in the water for the waterboarding and see what happens.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was uh, what Richard Alpert's buddies uh, back in the day suggested LSD in the water supply, right? I totally. don't think that's a very good idea, but, uh, you know, when you're dealing with the level of extremes that we're having this conversation around, it starts to be, you know, extreme problems call for extreme answers and extreme measures and extraordinary times call for extraordinary men and whatever, you know, like, we need a bunch of heroes and maybe that's not the case. Maybe we need some anti Heroes, some people who might do some dirty underhanded shit to bring love around the world instead of just being the hero with the shiny hat and the gold spurs and you know all of that sort of stuff um you know yeah i, I like I, it like let's let's bring about a a pax americanus that resembles the pax mongolius from several centuries ago or something like that you know uh sometimes sometimes it's unfortunate, but sometimes you just got to spit on your hands and raise the black flag, stop talking at certain points and get to work, you know? Get it done. All right.
1: <laughs> um, I, we can move on from this point. But yeah, it was interesting because when I went back and was rereading your book last night in preparation for this conversation, one of the notes I had here was, um, <clears throat> you know, if people don't appreciate the humor with which, uh, you know, your zero myth is written, <laughs> It could be inferred in a in a very jihadist lens of like, well, mm-hmm. if it's all nothing, what the fuck, right? Why not, right? And, yeah, and yeah. I was like, Ooh, that's uh, that's something I hadn't considered, and I wouldn't have considered, but for having finished the Sam Harris podcast yesterday, when it gave me a, a different look on on potential worldviews.
0: Yeah, that's um, and that's a fair question, right? Like, that's the the nihilism of the 20th century in a bunch of ways, whether whatever flavor of it you're looking at, whether it's the deconstructionists or it's the, you know, the Maoists or the, you know, uh, Stalinists or whatever, it gets real violent real fast whenever you stop believing that you have to answer for your actions or that there's a higher power that's looking over all of these sorts of things or, um, you know, and it it does like the book's intended to kind of push you to the to the limits around some of that sort of stuff, and then it ends with uh, an anti-suicide chapter instead of a suicide chapter, right? And, so, and to some degree, some of that's around like, um, have you read the Jed McKenna trilogy, the Enlightenment trilogy, or whatever? No, so. Jed McKenna's another pseudonym, right? Jed McKenna's real name was Peter Johnson, and uh, made the mistake of putting his real name out on his copyright, and a bunch of people figured out who he was. But he wrote this, you know, trilogy about how to get enlightened from an American perspective, and he and I share certain. Uh, views about some of that sort of stuff. But he was completely okay with talking about like, yep, becoming enlightened it's the same thing as suicide. It's just without actually killing your body. And we're all going to die someday and it's all meaningless. And, you know, it's like the uh, the nihilists from the big Lebowski. Like are these are these guys going to hurt us, Walter? No, Donnie, these men are cowards. Um you know that's Show what I think about is. Jed McKenna and his pseudonym, right? Like you're going to write under a pseudonym about enlightenment and then tell people like walk them right up to the edge of suicide and then not do anything other than let them teeter on the brink of the abyss or whatever. Like I do a lot of work in anti-suicidality in my mental health clinics. Like I talk to 10 out of 10 suicidal people quite a lot. It's been happening to me since I was a teenager, man. Like these people come and find me, right? Like that suicidal headspace. It does. It kind of resembles, you know, philosophical existentialism or nihilism or, you know, like, Hey, if life's meaningless, then we should just call it quits or we should just like kill babies. So they go to heaven or a whole bunch of just weird logic, but it's logical, right? Once you're in that headspace, once you've bought into that loop, you kind of just follow it to its logical conclusion. And that's what I wanted to do. Like you got to finish the book. It's only 150 pages. It's not that much work, right? Uh, But you got to finish the book to get to where like, I have an argument for why you should just keep on living like even if you think everything's meaningless even if you are convinced by all of the reasoning so far i think you should still just keep fucking going i think you should hang in there i don't think you should quit i don't think just because you can't find a meaning in things that you should end it all or that you should hurt each other or any of that sort of stuff like it's kind of taking the logic to its extreme and then suggesting like there's this human impulse for whatever reason to be like unhappy with that oh god it's all meaningless so what do i do i guess i'll just kill myself i oh, was super sad why are you going to interpret it sadly like the other side of the coin is you could have a whole lot of fun if you're nothing then you have nothing to fear yeah. and if you have nothing to fear then we can get real weird with having a good time with the time that we have left right like buy a farm raise chickens have a family enjoy your life like you could think that it's all still meaningless and enjoy the shit out of it. That's what I'm doing all day, every day me and my imaginary family that are super real appearing to me and to everyone else out there or whatever that I love more than anything in the world. Like uh, maybe, maybe I'm hallucinating this whole thing, including you right now, Ronan, right? Like what's the consensus reality state to begin with? It's a mystery. That's the point. The point is it's a mystery and you should get real comfortable with mystery and with not knowing and with untelling all your untrue stories about bullshit because if those stories are leading you to despair, if they're leading you to suicide or homicide or to violence or any of that sort of stuff, maybe just rethink them maybe start telling new stories. Maybe put the hero's journey away because it's just a cute little children's story that was useful for us from the time that we were monkeys climbing down out of the tree until now, you know, perceiving threats. But maybe we put that stuff away and we move on to a new journey with new stories where we just, have a, like, a little bit more compassion or just be a little bit nicer or like recognize you've cut people off in traffic just about as much as you've been cut off in traffic. And you don't have to be an asshole about every little offense that comes your way. Right.
1: Or maybe you just to... not take things so seriously. <clears throat> yeah. You know, just,
0: just take like that. And a ton of the book is me seriously joking over and over and over again. And sometimes it shines through better than other times, but that's how I am all the time. Like my wife gives me crap all the time about like, are you joking or are you serious? (laughs) Yes, I am seriously joking. I'm seriously having a really good time, you know, like that's, and I think that's, I'm suggesting anyway that it may be a better way. It may be quote unquote enlightened or the next step in consciousness evolved or whatever to maybe just take yourself a little bit less seriously and have a little bit more fun being kind to other people on a regular basis or whatever. You know, Um, I I think
1: you should change your
0: name to Ram Doc. Ram <laughs> servant of Doc is what I think that would be in Hindi, right? They have a servant of God, is what Ram Dost means. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, Doc of God, I guess it would be.
1: Um, yeah. Anyway. Speaking seriously, um, naked mole rats. <laughs> Trying to get me to do the spit take here. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Naked mole rats. What about them? They're like the coolest animal in the world. It's super weird, right?
1: Can you tell me the moment where you're like, you know what this book needs? (laughs) Naked fucking mole rats.
0: What would be the next hallucination in this series of psychedelic chapters that I've written here or whatever? I like we studied them legitimately. I was a study abroad student in uh, Tanzania, East Africa once upon a time, 10 or 15 lifetimes ago or whatever. And uh, we studied them legitimately. And I remember just tucking that all that stuff away. Like they were just so interesting. Like, what? kind of a society is this this makes sense to them like i'm sitting up here just judging the shit out of them like if i was them i I'd, I'd get the fuck out of there like i'd run away this isn't how you'd want to live sure enough there's one that does run away and then over and over again
1: yeah the Sorry, ones just,
0: that get away just, just start a new society
1: for for people listening who most probably won't read your book can you just talk about what the experience <laughs> of being a naked mole rat is and why it's relevant to uh the anti-hero's journey yeah, I suggest that like the life of
0: the naked mole rat resembles the hero's journey cycle of call, separation, initiation, return. And in like a naked mole rat colony, there's this one naked mole rat queen who's like a goddess who runs the whole thing. And most of the naked mole rats are like furniture. They're like floorboards and pillows and she just walks all over them all day. And there's a few like soldiers that protect the colony. And, uh, but then there's this, there's this genetically hardwired class of naked mole rats called the escapees or the dispersers that they just, They have more body fat on them. They're, like, born to get out of this colony, go find others like themselves, and then start new colonies over and over and over again. And then, sure enough, like, they all get together, and they, you know, like, we're above ground now. We're not in the underground. and We'll start a new colony, and it'll be the free colony, and we'll have a constitution and a bill of rights, and it'll be a whole hell of a lot different than that monarchy that we escaped from. And then, you know, they dig down into the ground, and one of them starts putting on a whole bunch of weight and becomes the queen and starts walking all over everybody again and over and over and over again. That's what the, what happens to them, right? Uh, and they're super interesting, even scientifically. Like, we're studying them for longevity medicine purposes because they live, like, 10 times longer than the average rat. And uh, You know, just scientifically, they're interesting. I guess there's, like, a kid's cartoon that uh, uses naked mole rats. I forget if it was Phineas and Ferb or one of those, like, uh, kids cartoons. They have them on there pretty regularly. Um, somebody told me about them when I was given my book away for free at psychedelic science in 2023, I had a booth there. Um, here, let me, let me tell you this. Did you go to PS 2023 out in Denver back in June?
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. And I, I created a, a bit of a stir because I said, I don't, we don't really know why psychedelics work. And truthfully, I don't care. Um, <laughs> the fact that they do work, that matters to me. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that Created a bit of a stir, but yeah, I was there, but I, I didn't make it to your booth. I didn't walk around that part. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I, uh, the first day I was there, I wore a Deadpool costume to the booth, right. <laughs> awesome. To like, like there were plenty of people there who were super serious about some of the uniforms they were wearing. And I was super not, uh, but I was wearing, you know, a cosplay outfit cause it's convention or whatever. I wanted people to not take me very seriously. Yeah. And, uh, but what I did was I gave away the book. Like I didn't sell it. All you had to do was I ran this little deal where I put a bunch of numbers, they were all chapter numbers, in a hat. And if you pull the chapter number out, you sit down in the chair and you read the chapter that you pull, and you give me a high five afterward, you can just have the book, I'll autograph it, all of that sort of stuff. Like I was just, if you'd exchange your attention, give me a little bit of your time, you can have the book for free, right? And uh, people started pulling that anti-suicide chapter out of that hat. Over and over again huh. and over and over again, it would be somebody who would open up to me. I would be doing like free therapy in this booth, like talking these people into wanting to live over and over again. Like this isn't what I was coming here to do. Like I'm
1: wearing a Deadpool suit. Like a,
0: I will look like a jackass. I'm in a Deadpool costume. Like I got to take this mask off and like sit down with this person who is weeping about how they came to this convention looking for an answer from God and admittedly like doing the drawing the number out of the hat thing made. it kind of seem random or whatever right like there was one day man like four people in a row pulled that thing out and then told me about like i was thinking about calling it quits a week ago and i know that god sent me to you for a reason and i was like oh jesus christ like i'm getting on like psychology today on their phones with them helping them make an appointment to get therapy the next week and like uh, you know like do you feel like you're gonna be safe like doing all the clinical like right things to do like in this booth surround by like you know people giving away mushroom chocolate bars all over the place and whatever and i'll tell you what after the fourth one in a row i spent like an hour with doing like anti-suicide therapy with i was like i'm gonna pull that number out of the hat like i should stop <laughs> i should stop leaving the number in the hat like these but apparently these people need this stuff right and i'll tell you i'll tell you this much too like uh i haven't really told anybody else this, uh, you know, beyond my friends and family or whatever, like I got done with the fourth one and I just had to cry. Like mm-hmm. it was, and it was the weirdest thing, man. Like it was like, people were just kind of putting this stuff on me over and over again. And I wasn't ready for it. Cause that wasn't what I went to the convention to do was like my job, like yeah. as a psychiatry <laughs> physician assistant. And I'm standing there in this Deadpool costume, like in this booth, like And it felt, it didn't feel, I didn't feel sad. It just felt like energy. It felt like I had to discharge all of this negative energy now, or it was going to like turn into a tumor somewhere and kill me or something you know yeah so i i just took off like i left the convention center to go back to my hotel room to cry and i'm like running like in this stupid costume like these homeless guys are stopping me like hey you got any money and i gave them like all my money like i was just get out of my way here just take all this money get out of my way i'm running back to the hotel in the stupid costume and like three of my best friends are in the hotel lobby right and i'm trying to like not have them see me but i'm like a 230 pound dude in a deadpool costume zoom hustling through here, right? Like everybody sees me. And my one buddy goes like, Hey, you're not going to stop and talk to us. And I yelled across the hotel lobby. I got to take a shit real bad (laughs) because that was less embarrassing than like yelling. I have to cry right now. And I went up into the hotel room, man. And it just, it was, I just started like crying so hard, but in this weird, like energy, I got to get this out of my body sort of way. Yeah. It wasn't like, I'm sad. I just got to let this loose. And I started to like slide back and forth between like crying and laughing. Cause it like, it sounded like laughter at a certain point. And then it sounded funny to me and I'm like laughing. And it was like, the energy just slid from like, Mm -hmm. crying to laughing to crying a little to laughing a little to crying even less to laughing even less to like oh i feel okay like i discharged all of that suicidal energy and i just went and did like pushups in the shower and listen to punk rock music and went to watch the flaming lips with my friends after that. And, and everything was okay. But it was like, Jesus Christ, is this going to be my life from now on? Are all these like suicidal people just going to come find me? I don't want to do it anymore. Like I'm going to go out, I'm going to live in the desert or something, you know, like all the actual enlightened people have always done or something, you know, I just,
1: it was a super weird, you know, psychedelic science war story for you. It sounds uh, like a perfect psychedelic science story. Actually, um, it sounds <laughs> like the like you couldn't have scripted a better psychedelic science story. Um, so, thank you for sharing that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a weird booth and a weird time.
1: Uh, and I love the fact that it was in a Deadpool costume. You know, <laughs> I, I think that the the place that this all keeps going back to, and I think this is why. I, you know since you reached out uh, i've appreciated who you are even though we've only had the pleasure of speaking together for like a, a two hours in total maybe even less yeah there's a level of absurdity uh, in all of this and like yeah. once you can embrace the absurdity of it all then yeah, it yeah. kind of comes back to exactly your philosophy of like well if it's nothing might as well enjoy it um you know and and i appreciate that and I, and that's always been part of my I think MO is just being the absurdist, being the person, you know, you mentioned Darwin and I think I mentioned it on a podcast. It's like, I remember in university being told to write a paper about why Darwin's theory of evolution was the most successful. Uh, and everyone wrote because it was the best. And I wrote, well, it wasn't the best. It just happened to be at a place in time where more people responded to it. Um, yeah. Everybody was ready for a new idea. Like, like let, let's not take shit so seriously. It, it, it uh, you know, the one thing I've, I've always come back to is like, the only thing I can say with certainty about this life is that we get to experience it. That's it. So I might as well experience it for all of it, is, what it is, right? Like the highs and the lows and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And, and kind of keep that in mind.
0: Yeah. Might as well make it good and keep it weird.
1: Yeah. Keep it weird. Though. That's exactly right. All right. One yeah, final you had, question. Uh, Go ahead. You had Dick
0: Schwartz, uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz on the podcast, like the godfather of internal family systems or whatever. Yeah. And you were doing the the intro there and you did like a Wayne's World intro. It was like, party on, Wayne, party on, Dick. And I was like, I think I could be Ronan's friend. Like, he's weird <laughs> enough. Well, who the hell does that for the intro for like dr dick schwartz is coming to talk about ifs you're doing a wayne's world joke yeah i think this guy's on the on the right level for sure
1: i, I appreciate so. that i did not even remember doing that but uh I, I thank you for calling that out i'm going to take that as a badge <laughs> of uh, a badge of honor right now um yeah every once in a while you could look back at facebook or something along those lines and you see your posts on social media and be like fuck i used to be funny <laughs>
0: Yeah. It's nice when it's fuck I used to be funny and not like I'm going to burn this whole thing down and never be on social media again. Look at what I was doing 10 years ago or whatever.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that comes up too. It's both of them. Um <laughs> but uh again, all part of life, right? You take the good, great, you take the all. bad, you take the rest and there you have the facts of life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the facts of life.
1: <laughs> all right. Uh so one final question. Uh you grew up It sounds like in a fairly conservative Christian kind of upbringing. Um, What's that? Yeah, I just affirmed
0: what you said. Sorry.
1: It's okay. Uh, And then, you know, and I'm just going to read this from chapter 15. You say, embody all of life's paradox in a way that overcomes fear with love. Why love? Not to spoil the ending for you, but that's what's on the other side of nothing. And, you know, we've touched on this in various different ways in this conversation, but Do you remember when that started to become real for you? Like it's it's it it's not inconsistent with Christianity, but I can see how it's very inconsistent with how Christianity probably gets practiced quite a bit. Um, and is definitely more on the woo woo side of traditional religion, and it seems to be very consistent with you know the psychedelic movement. Um, but when, when did that when did that become real for you? Do you remember? And do you ever? find it inconsistent with some of the things you were brought up with and and how, how do you reconcile that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair question. Um, it's, it's one of those things where I feel like it was something that I believed more or less throughout my whole life, looking back on it. And there were just times where I had more or less layers of bullshit that I stacked on top of that, right. looking back on it now from where I'm at and what I believe it's like, Like I like to say, like the hero's journey is you know, the, the best stories have it woven throughout the whole thing, but that the antiheroes journey is the reality stamped on the bottom of every one of those stories. If you flip it over and you take a look, Oh, it turns out like everything's nothing. So you should be made in uh, loving on. or whatever. Right. Yeah. Made it, exactly <laughs> like you want to know what's real. Like what's the deal? Where'd this thing come from? Look at the bottom of it. And there's the antiheroes journey waiting to say everything is zero. Yeah. Um, so, You know, like it took me two weeks to write the book. It also took me 42 years to write the book. How long have I believed this at some level since, you know, maybe it goes back all the way in consciousness past my generation to every generation to the original generation to you know, whoever started this whole thing. Um, but also it feels like very recently is whenever I got the most clarity around all of that, like around healing a whole bunch of the, the trauma of, you know, growing up in what was ultimately a very, very loving, but occasionally violent household, um, and going into, you know, the military and struggling through some of the things that I had to struggle through there and starting my own family and just all of the pain and all of the suffering that's just my version of being human that we all you know struggle through and endure I got to a place you know just in the last year or so around you know like using non-ordinary states of consciousness and ketamine assisted therapy and holotropic breath work where it opened things up enough that I could get enough of a perspective around things to see that like uh there's this mystical way of being that's like embedded in every religion, right? Like there's the Sufi tradition in Islam. There's the Kabbalist tradition in Judaism. Like Buddhism is essentially a Hindu heresy. Like it's spun out of that as a mystic tradition. There's the Gnostic flavor of Christianity, right? Like there's all these ways to honor the ultimate mystery that, you know, you can call whatever you want. You can call it God. You can call it whatever language or source or, you know, the universe or, you know, enki or enlil or ninhersag or you know uh, um allah or like it goes by a a million different names it's the zero with a thousand faces at like a theological level but i like that level of being just utterly convicted that love is at the heart of it all that It's fairly recent for me, unfortunately for me, but I think uh, the way that I'm trying as hard as I can with my wife to raise our kids is so that like, that's a lot more apparent to them a lot
1: earlier in their lives. And I think that's the best that I can do with what I got at this point. How do you, um, sorry, I lied. (laughs) I said that was the last question. And I really appreciate (laughs) that answer and the thing I struggle with. And I think you certainly reflect the cerebral nature Uh, of life and often the cerebral nature and the the mystical nature uh, intersect not in a friendly way and and how do you find that balance because i like to believe everything that you say every once in a while i've had the experience of what you're mentioning Uh, and then you know the ego comes back and says shut the fuck up get back to work you're an idiot (laughs) like here are all the inconsistencies of everything you're thinking about right now so suck it right right
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's those voices. How do you make friends with all all the voices in your head? Yeah. Yeah, Uh, I do. I talk to myself a lot. Sometimes it's the only way I can get an intelligent conversation going (laughs) depending on what room I'm in. Right. Um, But yeah, like I was just like trying to explain this to my wife the other day because my wife and kids, like they notice, right? Like I'll zone out a little bit and be like, and it, it is like I'm being hard on myself. Like I'm being critical. Internal family systems is a great way of doing therapy around some of that stuff where like you have parts and it's just trying to integrate all your parts and I'll be doing something and screwing it up. And there'll be this voice that's like, yeah, you know, you're a piece of shit. You always screw everything up or whatever. And for whatever reason, I've gotten to a place where like, by pulling it apart and putting it back together by contracting and expanding inside of my own head around some of the stuff. It's like, as soon as that voice shows up, there's another voice that's like, yeah, why are you being so fucking hard on the guy? Like he's trying as hard as he can. Right. Like, And I'm, I'm just making friends with all of the parts. Cause then that one will be like, ah, you know, like, yeah, you're right. I'm, I am kind of being a piece of shit right now. Like, why am I so hard on this guy all the time? or whatever? He's doing the best. Yeah. Like, you know, and it is, it's kind of like the Deadpool comics where like, he's got five different fonts that are all talking to each other." And that's some of what I'm doing in the book too, right? Like I got italics where I'm talking to myself in there. Mm -hmm. And it is like, it's kind of teaching yourself just a different way of being in the world. And I think maybe, you like, you know, biologically, there's a whole bunch of new neurons that you're growing with neuroplasticity and psychedelics can help with some of that sort of stuff. I think maybe just my brain's uh, integrating a bit better than it ever has before. And it allows me that biological platform from which to then start to have self-compassion to have reflexively recognizing that like, Oh, I'm, I'm being a real jerk to myself right now. I'm being real critical and being real harsh on myself. And, uh, it's becoming reflexive to the point where like, um, uh, like the critic is getting quieter and quieter and quieter. Right. Uh, and shows up less and less often. Uh, unless I'm tired or hungry or angry or lonely, right? Because I'm still just a human being. Yeah. No matter how enlightened I may or may not actually be, I'll always just be human, right? That's I'm all I can hope for. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, that's been it. all of my questions and a delightful conversation. Uh, I really appreciated the bulk for everyone's listening. Uh, if you're so inclined after this conversation, if you're not uh, back at the starting question of what the fuck, uh, definitely check out Ben's book, anti Journey the Zero with a Thousand Faces. I promise it will confuse you, but maybe that's the point.
0: Thank you, my friend. Thank you.